0: Have you ever fancied using captured gear for your impression? Well, that's just what Chris and I will uh, talk about in this episode of The Reenactor's Corner.
1: Everybody, welcome to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here once again with Lasa. How are you doing today, Lassa?
0: Oh, I am doing fine. It's uh, always a pleasure to speak to the master of reenactment. Um, <laughs> sure. How are you? I'm good.
1: Uh, it's starting to the weather's starting to turn cold here, which I really enjoy. Good. Well, timing. we had
0: year. snow quite a few weeks ago, but now it's just mild and rain and actually like 10 degrees celsius
1: yeah that's warm yeah it's uh it was probably around zero degrees celsius here today we did have a little bit of snow a few weeks ago uh, i love it i went out and when we had some snow i went out there and uh took some photographs uh in my world war Two gear because i just love like you know i love the look of uh World War II uniforms in, like, a snow winter setting. So <laughs> reminiscent of period <laughs> photos to me.
0: Yeah. When I saw the photos. It looked like a fun event or fun photo shoot.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was literally just just me. Uh, but, uh, no, it was fun, and I never waste an opportunity because typically where I live, we have a lot of snow in the wintertime, but the weather has been so mild lately, and last year we had almost no snow at all, so... Um, As soon as I saw that snow on the ground, I was, like, putting my gray coat on, and I ran out there just to do something, just to get those pictures that I, like, I will enjoy. I'll look back on those.
0: Well, yeah, worth it.
1: Yeah. Um, We did have an event here uh, that I don't think I've talked about. Um, Maybe – did we talk about it? I don't even remember, but um, I'm still, like – feeling positive about reenacting from this really successful reenactment event that we did. And uh, definitely looking forward to our next event, which won't be until next month. But I'm already starting to, like, get my rations together and get everything uh, perfect, figure out exactly what I'm going to wear, and uh, scheduling some meetings with guys in my reenactment group so that we can talk about the event in advance and plan exactly what we're going to do so that when, when the time comes to actually do it, we all know, uh, exactly what the expectations are and how everything's going to be.
0: Well, that sounds like the, uh, the dream scenario, really. (laughs) Uh, we have no events planned until like next year, sadly we're playing it kind of safe.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, um, you know, I can't knock being safe. Um, you know fortunately or unfortunately depending on how you want to look at this in the area where i live um we've had our kind of big virus peak in like march or april so right now in the united states cases are really going up and cases have gone up a little bit where i live but not they're not like what they were um during the most uh you know brutal time for for people getting sick with this virus thing so um you know, we're ready to kind of do some stuff. And of course, uh, reenacting can be done in a way that's kind of safe, right? I mean, depending on how you do it, it's mostly or can be mostly outside. Um, And you could even do it with some social distancing, although it can be be really hard. You know, obviously there is no um, Wehrmacht packaging for hand sanitizers, you know what I mean?
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, you could always just have a, a glass bottle and make that look like it's a moonshine of from course. your yeah, local just farm. Just as long
1: as you know you don't have that one guy in your group who will drink it. That is
0: true. Do you have one of those in your group?
1: Uh, yeah, we do have one of those guys. Uh, you know, is he called him. Chris? <laughs> no, not me. I would never do such a thing. Um, <laughs> but. Yeah, so that's good. So, I'm excited about our topic today, which is going to be about uh, captured items and how you can use them in reenacting, meaning like using uniforms, equipment, weapons of the, you know, the quote-unquote enemy, the the other side in this make-believe thing that we're doing. Um, this is like a kind of a um, controversial subject on the internet because you know, there, a lot of people will get really dogmatic about it and they'll say, okay, uh, you know, any use of this is, is farby, it's wrong. Um, Here's photographs of this guy using this, um, you know, captured weapon and it wouldn't be used in that setting. And sometimes that's absolutely the truth, but other times it's not, you know, and the reality is, is that as dogmatic as people can be about this, it's really kind of a complex subject. So I think it'll be something good for us to discuss uh, in this format.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's there's always the guys with the uh, PPSH who want to use those.
1: Sure. And, you know, even within the PPSH, there's going to be controversy. The PPSH being like the Soviet submachine gun that was what more or less widely used right by German soldiers in World War 2 but there were two models of this thing there's like the, the PPSH41 and then there's the PPS or the PPSH43 which is all metal and those weren't kind of used in the same way at the same time those um you know whether you choose one or the other can depend on a whole variety of variables so even within the same like type of captured equipment there can be um Variables are things that need to be taken into account when you're evaluating whether or not something is appropriate for you for you to use during reenacting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we're going to discuss here.
1: Yeah. Well, so let's first start off with like the big picture, right? Like, um, is it ever appropriate to use captured items as part of a reenactment impression? Um, it, and I guess... This is going to come down as a matter sort of of opinion or philosophy. Um, In reenacting, there is this general feeling that you should always portray what is common and typical or portray the norm. Um, So you can interpret what is common and typical in different ways. And some people choose to interpret that as, well... A German soldier who was a rifleman in an infantry squad, he was issued everything that he needed from the army, and he was issued his uh, German rifle, and that's that's what was common and typical. That's how it was. That's what it was, and that's what it should be. Um, and that's an attitude that I don't think you can necessarily say is wrong. I don't think you could ever say, well, in this situation, you have to have some captured enemy something, right? If you've got all the stuff that a soldier in your position would have been issued by the German military, then that's probably a, a correct way of doing it. However, I think that there is another way of looking at it, which is if you look at um, veteran accounts for soldiers in certain units, certain times, certain places, you know, this is all very very uh, specific to to time and place, that you'll find that use of some kind of captured gear was um, really common. I'll mention here a a memoir that I really enjoy that discusses this quite a bit. It was written by a German officer named Gottlob Biedermann, and the book is called In Deadly Combat. He initially wrote this memoir uh, just kind of for guys in his unit. And later he added to it and it wound up being, you know, more widely published, translated into English. Um, and in this book, many, many times in this book, as he's describing, um, the combat actions that he was a part of on the Eastern Front, he's talking about searching enemy dead for, for anything that they could use. He's talking about, um, taking stuff from Soviet prisoners, from dead Soviet soldiers. And in one part of this book, he is talking about uh, he's talking about the idea of a victory parade at the end of the war and what that would look like in Berlin. And he's talking about all the tanks going by and the soldiers marching in, in rows and the crowd is cheering. And then at the very end of the parade is... A soldier who is dressed in rags and he uh, he's got on him items that were captured from the Soviets and uh, he's kind of staggering limping along and it turns out that this guy is supposed to be the last survivor of all the German soldiers on the Eastern Front. And in this kind of fantasy scenario that Gottlieb Biederman describes, somebody approaches him and says, hey, man, what what are you? What are you doing here? And it turns out he responds in Russian. And it turns out that this guy who is the last survivor of the Eastern Front has forgotten even how to speak German. But I think it's really interesting that in his characterization of this, like, archetype, this Eastern Front fighter character that he specifically mentions, items of captured equipment, um So he must have felt that that was common and typical for the people in his unit, and as I say, he mentions taking stuff from the Soviets over and over again in his memoir, so it you know it makes sense in the context of the book
0: that is interesting. I didn't know if that
1: yeah and and that's kind of the attitude you know that i I might take. I think that incorporating items that are specific and local to the time and place that you are portraying can really kind of help you to dial in very specifically to what exactly it is that you're trying to represent. You know, a a soldier in 1943 uniform with all 1943 gear um, as issued, you know, the perfect, most common, typical items issued in 1943 to German soldiers. Well, that impression, um, you could probably be portraying somebody Uh, on the Atlantic Wall in France, or somebody on the Eastern Front, or somebody in training in Germany, or almost anything in between, and it would kind of be equally correct, but if you can include some items that are very local and specific, to me that adds an element of, it adds an element of realism, and it kind of helps to immerse a little bit more into kind of the history side of this, and to realize, okay, well, the, the pocket contents, say, of a soldier, um, in you know the on the outskirts of Leningrad would probably not be exactly the same as the stuff that would be being carried by somebody in Denmark on occupation duty so that that kind of thing is where I think having some items of captured you know captured enemy items can can kind of enhance an impression a little bit
0: yeah I kind of agree with that standpoint Um, of course to some limited degree like some people can easily take this too far and basically dress up as an enemy soldier yeah
1: that's something that um is it can be people can definitely take it too far um i actually read in a in a german memoir and unfortunately I i can't even remember what book i read this in anymore but there was a an account of like a a World War II German soldier who actually took this too far, where it was, I think, um, the, the win- autumn or winter of 1941. He was in the Soviet Union. He had captured a Soviet Yushanka cap, like a fur, uh, warm winter hat, which is much warmer than the than the you know simple German Schifian you know overseas type cap. And he had also captured a warm uh, Soviet overcoat, and he was wearing that. Soviet soldier's overcoat over his overcoat and he was marching and uh an officer came by and started to uh I think like assault and berate the person who was leading the marching column saying what is the matter with you why do you have soviet prisoners carrying weapons in your marching column and the <laughs> the guy in particular had to like take open up his coat and be like no 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 I'm not I'm not a soviet prisoner I'm I'm a german soldier I'm just wearing this stuff um but of course that's not like that probably is not a common and typical situation, right? That's something that happened. But, I mean, as you can think think about it from the perspective of the story, the, um, the officer in this situation saw the German soldier wearing a Soviet cap and overcoat and assumed that he was a Soviet POW. You know, it wasn't, like, reasonable for him to think, okay, this is just a, a German soldier wearing a Soviet hat and overcoat because everybody is doing that. But somebody might somebody maybe named chris chris right me i'm talking about me here basically <laughs> as a little bit of an aside i used to get like way too into this stuff i um when i was a new reenactor i had like a bunch of bad ideas and i had read that account and some other ones and i thought okay at the the one eastern front event that happens uh, each year that I get to go to, I'm going to wear as much Soviet stuff as possible. So I did wear a Soviet overcoat and a hat and I had a Soviet like shelter quarter and a oh, no. rucksack and the equipment straps that I used were oh, Soviet right no. and it, of course it's you know for, fortunately for me, uh, this was kind of before the days of digital photographs, so there are actually no photographs that exist of me at these events, and I am very glad of it because I don't <laughs> think that that impression that I was presenting was authentic really at all.
0: Why didn't you just go as a Russian?
1: I did that one time, um, and in fact, that impression was probably the actually the most Farby impression that I ever uh, fielded, and there's no photographs of that either. Uh, fortunately for me, I would never, never live it down. But look, I just... I like... I'll be honest, I'm speaking this I'm speaking like from a personal standpoint here, my interest. And this is separate from like what's correct in reenacting, but I'm really interested in the Eastern Front in general and I'm interested in Soviet gear and I'm interested in um, German use of Soviet stuff, I'm interested in Soviet use of German stuff and kind of the what it was really like for those guys in this vast, vast region of the occupied Soviet Union. um, The supply lines being stretched out the way that they were, like people kind of being forced to live off the land. I think that stuff is really, really interesting. Um, But obviously there are like right ways and wrong ways to represent that in a reenactment context. And I think what I'm doing now where I do uh, participate in events as a Soviet and as a German, depending on the event. Um, so I can kind of do both and, and learn about both and learn about the gear used by both sides without kind of forcing, um, something to be something that it's not, you know, I think that's the way to do it. Um, having said that I will use some Soviet items when I'm participating in Eastern front reenactments. still, like for example, um, we might be sleeping in a Tseltbahn tent, but I might use a captured Soviet uh, shelter quarter as a ground sheet. And in captured uh, Soviet shelter halves or shelter quarters, the plash palatka it's called, those do show up in World War II photographs. Or like another thing that I think somebody could do that I might do would be to, um, if I was making a meal just for a few of us, I might use a captured Soviet cook pot style mess kit to make a meal for four people. Again, that's something that can be seen in photographs uh, of Germans using that. But it's important. This is going to kind of maybe be the refrain of this episode a little bit, but it's just important to do this stuff in moderation. You know, one thing or another thing, not this and this and this and this and this because it becomes too much.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think if I use anything captured, and I don't really think I do.
1: What about your your group? Do you guys have, like, a rule about it specifically?
0: No, I... No. What if... Because no one I has was, done it.
1: What if I was in your group, and we were going to be doing some kind of, uh, I don't know, Ardennes event, and I wanted to use an American M1 carbine?
0: i have to look it up i know it was done but i'd have to look that up like how how oh, okay um how much that would how how common it would be
1: that's good yeah i think that's a very healthy attitude to have about it you know to look at things on a case-by-case basis um you know because none of us know everything about everything right and i think uh i think that evaluating specific items in specific situations is like a totally reasonable way to do it.
0: Yeah. Uh, If you asked if you could use some sort of other item, like, uh, I don't know, some sort of American boots, for example, I guess one guy with that could work out fine.
1: Cool. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you know what, we could probably talk a little bit about like some some differences here depending on where you are supposed to be in the world of World War II like I think people who are familiar with historical accounts will probably have a sense that like generally in places where the supply lines were really extended soldiers were kind of forced to scavenge and and make do with whatever they could find. So, for like, uh, for example, in Africa, the German Africa Corps. Uh, there's lots of photos of them using captured British stuff because, you know, there it was very hard to get um, supplies from Germany, where the stuff was being made, to places in Africa where these guys were fighting. And so, um, if they were capturing British positions where there was perfectly serviceable good uh vehicles or or even uniform stuff in some cases that was left behind they would take that stuff and use that um on the other hand most of the time when i'm looking well, i mean I, I here's like an obvious example would be uh like a d-day type event or normandy where you have uh basically occupation troops who are fighting trying to fend off this allied invasion i mean there's not it's it's hard really to imagine soldiers in that situation using as much captured gear because they they had been there in france for the most part with this gear that they were using that they'd been issued and they were trained on it and and why wouldn't they just have used it you know what i mean there was lots of stuff there for their use so um i just think this this may sound obvious, but I just think it's important that um, people not take a kind of a one-size-fits-all to the captured gear question, because it really does depend on uh, what front or what period of the war, stuff like that.
0: Absolutely. And we're trying to reenact the norm, as you say. And it, when I look at photos, uh, captured stuff is something I see every now and then, uh, which means it isn't the norm. So... I would say keep it to a minimum, but it's it's a cool touch uh, with some of it.
1: Yeah, I I agree that so, uh, less is more with a lot of this stuff. You know, like one accent piece. You know, might uh, help kind of augment your impression, but um, but yeah, too much is too much. I think.
0: But then uh, there's also the. Uh, other type of captured gear, which would be gear captured from others on your team and not the enemy. And a good example of this would be that uh, for any German unit that seems to have been stationed near U-boat docks, they seem to have gotten their hands on the the very uh, uh, the very unique uh, U-boat leather jacket.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting to think about to look at photographs and see stuff where it's like, okay, this is an item that was intended for a soldier in the Luftwaffe or um, some other branch, and here it is being used by a soldier who definitely shouldn't have been issued this stuff. And a lot of times, if you know the context of the photo, maybe you can find out. Okay, this makes sense. Um, you know, like for example. There were certain types of German, certain battalions uh, in German grenadier units in, for example, Italy got mountain training. And so you might be looking at a photograph of this infantry unit and some of those guys are wearing uh, mountaineering gear or the special mountain boots. And you might think, okay, well, uh, maybe this person just traded with a Gebirgsjäger or something. When in reality, they're issued this special gear because they were trained for this special task. You know, and I think other times maybe, who knows, right? Maybe it was just a mix-up, or um, I don't know. But um, definitely something interesting to to research. You know, it's it it is something that shows up in period photographs uh, often enough, I guess.
0: Yeah, and another very specific scenario would be the uh, the Battle of Narvik in Norway, nineteen forty where the Kriegsmarine lost 10 destroyers and um, the crew of those destroyers are rather used on foot than being shipped home, of course. So they issued them Norwegian gear that was captured from huge uh, uh, warehouses of equipment. And the only thing they had to distinguish themselves from actually being German was uh, was an armband that was issued.
1: Wow, I didn't know that. That's really cool.
0: Yeah, that... you see you see like rows and rows and rows of what seems like uh, Norwegian soldiers uh, saluting a German officer, but they're all Germans.
1: Wow. That brings up a really good point, which is that I think a lot of times when we talk about captured gear, we're talk we're thinking about items where the soldier picked it up himself on the battlefield. He took it from a dead enemy combatant, or he took it from a prisoner. Um, but that's not really like the only way that soldiers got captured stuff. I mean, the Germans captured tremendous, tremendous amounts of enemy material and uh, reissued it. So you could be having captured gear uh despite having never been on a battlefield having never seen even an enemy soldier um but that's just what they gave you you know that's another kind of aspect uh that needs to be evaluated especially with regard to to weapons and uh certain yeah, stuff like
0: that coming back to the russian PPS-AGE it uh as far as I've read uh the uh, like a big number of those submachine guns were taken Uh, as a warehouse loot and they were rechambered to nine millimeter which would suit the german logistics better and were reissued through like official means
1: yeah i've been going through some uh, newspaper articles from the trade magazine for like german uniform tailors and uniform manufacturers and it's just unbelievable um the the photographs and the information in there about the quantities of of like boots and gear that they captured in France you know when they occupied France in 1940 um or the the Polish stuff that they got you know and and later on stuff from Scandinavia stuff from the other European countries that they occupied they took these massive massive supplies of all kinds of military equipment and some of that stuff they reworked and reissued to their own troops, you know, and um, uh, it's really interesting sometimes to look at original gear, um, original surviving pieces of gear and see, okay, wow, this is made out of pieces of um, equipment that was made in other countries used by other nations' armies. Um, and that's something that that can be incorporated in a in a reenactment impression to some extent as well.
0: Absolutely. Um and then you also have like the smaller types of equipment like uh personal items which also seems to be uh a thing.
1: Absolutely it is. I have some ground dug personal items that were found in trash pits in uh on the former eastern front. And there, within among these items that I have, there's a razor and shaving stuff from France, and there's Dutch tooth powder, and you know, it's it's possible that these were soldiers who had picked this stuff up in uh, in Belgium or in France, but I think it's equally likely, or maybe even more likely, that these were given to soldiers in. In Russia, basically, or uh, were made available to them for bought to made available for them to buy, or they could have had it sent from home. You know, this stuff that was basically intended originally for the uh, germ the like domestic market in the countries in which it was made, but wound up being used by German soldiers. There's a lot, a lot of that stuff that gets turned up in battlefield archaeology situations.
0: Yeah, I bet. Um, There's also. Uh, Talking about uh, captured items there's a story I recall from some memoirs. I can't recall what memoirs uh, but it's from the Battle of the Bulge where a German guy uh, takes some gloves from some American uh, prisoner uh, because the gloves look really warm and comfortable and he said it's the best damn gloves he ever had. Uh, But uh, he loses them and Later, during the uh, battle, he sees another German with them. And, like, um, he, he goes up and asks, like, where did you get those from? And it turns out that the gloves he took from the American soldier were German all along. Wow. And it seems like the American actually captured them from a German soldier.
1: I really love anecdotes like that. I think they really speak to something very human and basic about the world war ii experience you know where it's like for these people who were literally fighting for their lives never knowing if today might be your last day um you would really maybe value some the comfort of a warm pair of gloves highly and a pair of gloves was a pair of gloves. So, you know, a good pair of gloves in a frontline situation was a very sought-after commodity. And maybe it, it didn't even matter in a sense whether it was American gloves, gloves for civilians, or german issue gloves, or what. You know, you were going to wear that if you could get your hands on it. Of course, yeah. that, that can be like a really slippery slope when it's applied to a reenactment impression. That's the, <laughs> the dangerous part about it. That's, like, right next to, like, if they had it, they would have used it. You know what I mean?
0: Well, yeah, it's a very slippery slope, and one should be very careful to it. Um, Like, you should probably try to avoid your German impression having a Lucky Strike cigarette pack and a Zippo lighter (laughs) and a Hershey bar. Yeah,
1: that's a good point. Right, these, like, iconic things that... uh, it it is it winds up kind of being overdone and can be a, a little bit cheesy.
0: <laughs> a
1: little bit. Um, I think one area where people get into a lot of trouble with captured stuff is weapons specifically because, um, look, let's face it: there are were a lot of weapons that were used in World War II, and the availability and cost of those weapons today varies widely. So. Um, You know, there people might have other motives other than just um, historical authenticity when they're, you know, for example, using a British Sten gun as a captured piece instead of using a German MP40 or something like that. Or, you know, I'll see these um, Finnish submachine guns or um, the PPS-43 instead of the PPS-H41. And it's like you can't help but notice that these weapons that are kind of on the higher availability, lower cost scale wind up being in use as captured items a lot more than uh, enemy weapons that are not so inexpensive today. You know, maybe that's, um, that maybe is something that's like, I notice it more in America because obviously the availability of weapons uh, is going to be different from from country to country. Um, but uh, I definitely think that people, there have been people, and I, I maybe have done this myself at some point in the past, where people will justify use of captured weapons because the weapon that would be correct for their impression is difficult to get or very expensive.
0: Yeah, no, we have the uh, same problem, but... If you can't get a hold of the weapon that is suited then maybe you should do another impression
1: right I agree um, you know th- the fact that World War two German soldiers made use of captured weapons shouldn't be taken as an excuse to take the cheap way out or try to squeak by with something that isn't really right yeah well, the other the other thing though is I think at this this is going to tread some dangerous ground here but um, I mean I I hesitate even to say this but because I've I've been involved in some pretty bitter debates about this in the past but if you look at certain types of units that were present in Normandy for example or that were present at D-Day specifically and where these units came from and if you look at documentation of how these units were equipped there were many uh, ex-Soviet weapons in use among certain units on the Atlantic Wall um, because these were occupation units. They were basically regarded as rear area units with a low supply priority and the Wehrmacht had captured tremendous quantities of Soviet weapons including everything from individual stuff like rifles to crew served weapons like mortars and anti-tank cannons and they weren't using these things generally uh, in combat uh, on the front because they, in many cases, they regarded the German stuff as being superior, or they, the ammunition supply would have been a, a difficult uh, logistical problem. Uh, so some of the stuff was sent to the occupied countries and was used by garrison troops. Um, and I think there were there, you know, it's not unreasonable at all to say that. In the general area of operations on D-Day, uh, where the battle was taking place, there were some Soviet weapons in use. Now, you know how you interpret that—the the documentation and the kind of the nuance that has to go into interpreting that from a reenactment perspective—I think you have to be very, very, very careful because. Obviously, if you're putting yourself out there as well, this is the, the typical defender of the, the Normandy beach, and you've got uh, a Soviet Mosin Nagant M9130 rifle, I, I don't think that's going to be particularly reasonable. But at the same time, I can't say with absolute certainty that there was nobody firing a, an M9130 Mosin rifle on D Day. So, um, you know, the yeah, I, no, I just from... can't stress enough how important it is to do like specific research on the specific thing that you're trying to portray
0: absolutely and when it comes to like uh, a D-Day specifically with the Mosin uh, it seems to my research that uh, bolt action rifles were generally uh, k 98s and what you would see being uh, other other weapons would be like some machine guns and light machine guns and cruiser served the weapons as you say but it seems like the in general, the Germans were very good in supplying the K-98 rifle.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I've, I've looked at some... I agree with you generally, you know. I, but I, I have looked at some uh, some equipment lists and some photographs for, for example, like Ost-Battalion soldiers who were... Um, they had been taken prisoner they had fought with the red army been taken prisoner volunteered or were you know were forced to fight for the germans wound up in france and i think some of those guys did have did retain some uh individual weapons you know i'm not i'm yeah, not the 100% Ospot-Allen sure seems I, to I, be, I think uh, they did
0: yeah the no, os battalions seem to have uh uh retained their mosin and other stuff but um, I was speaking more in general terms of like regular German soldiers. Well, I agree with you, but but just think about it. Like it's, I totally,
1: I do totally agree with you. I do think at the same time that it is very hard to um, to say, well, what is the guy who was like defending the beach? Right, it was a lot of different units, different unit types were involved at D-Day. So if somebody were to go to a public display, for example, um, that is presenting a D-Day vignette, and he is portraying a soldier of an Ostbataillon, and he's got a mosin rifle, you know, there are going to be people who are going to look at that and be like, okay, that's totally Farb. This guy is a snowflake. This is totally wrong. He's not portraying what's common. He's portraying the exception to the rule. But on the other hand, um, you know, if he can show, okay, this unit was here defending this sector or this beach you know it's not really wrong in that way or maybe you almost have to kind of look at it like a like a philosophy thing like okay well maybe if 10 people were doing it it would be realistic looking but having one person do it it doesn't look as realistic or something like that but it comes down to these subjective things it's a very hard to make absolute statements about this stuff because um There are just so many variables. And I think people are oftentimes quick to make judgments without really pausing to consider the individual specific research that might have gone into a a very specific impression that applies to a specific scenario.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I I do like seeing like impressions from like specific battles where they show the uniqueness of a certain unit. I, I love that stuff.
1: So, you know, my people who listen to the podcast probably are aware my unit portrays a rear area security unit. That's the impression that my unit does. And looking at the weapons that those guys were issued, they were issued in many cases, um, and this, of course, is a is a blanket statement that doesn't apply to every unit and every unit type, but but generally speaking, in Sikhrung's units... Um, there were often more captured rifles than there were German rifles in use. Uh, and of course that is because a lot of these guys, they weren't even really expected to fire the rifle. Somebody on garrison duty, deep in occupied, um, France, right, uh, th- the likelihood that this person is going to need to fire his weapon in anger is very small, probably. So a lot of times these guys were issued French or Belgian rifles for which limited ammunition was available. Um, sometimes in the pay books of these soldiers, it will actually say specifically how many rounds they got because they had to be accountable for each round, presumably because it was limited supply. Um but even in, in the Soviet Union, in the occupied Soviet Union, where these guys were going into combat against partisans generally, um, you know, I, I looked at a, a list, a weapons list for a Sickering's brigade, and they had more French, Belgian, Yugoslavian, and Czech rifles than German rifles even there on the eastern front, so or, or in the occupied east, right, maybe not at the front. Um, so it kind of presents a challenge to me as to how to how to portray that. Um and we've gotten so the way we portray it is uh we basically have a rule where um you can have a rifle that is from a list of weapons that use the regular German 7.92 millimeter ammunition. Um that's kind of a logistical thing really for us because weapons that the Germans use that fire that ammunition, including the K-98, the Czech VZ-24, the modified uh, World War One g G-98, plus some other weapons like the K-98AZ, these are generally available so our recruits and guys can have and get these rifles. Also, we issue blanks at our events, so if somebody wanted to use a French MAS-36, that would require having special blanks for them, it's not going to work. Um, also, I think it, it's valid to question what the likelihood would be of having different weapon types among people in the same squad. Um, so that's kind of why we we've we've made this rule. But in a way, even that kind of is a compromise because I only so the unit that um, my reenactment group is called Sickinger's Regiment One Ninety Five. And I have one Zoldbuch from a member of this particular regiment. And that's really the only documentation that I have specific to the exact unit that we kind of use as our identity. Um, and that particular soldier used a French rifle. So in theory, you know, if you, depending on how you want to extrapolate that, maybe everybody in my unit should have a French, uh, you know, captured French surplus rifle. Um, but these rifles are expensive, difficult to find, and in the sold book, it doesn't say what kind of French rifle it is. So was it a MAS 36 or was it a Lebel or something else? I don't know. So we've had to make some subjective uh, determinations.
0: Does about... it just say like French rifle?
1: Yes, it does. It says rifle, it says type, <laughs> and then it says F for French. <laughs>
0: oh that's so specific
1: (laughs) right so uh and of course there were there were multiple different models of french rifles that were used by german soldiers in world war ii um so it's it's information but it's it's not all the information and and uh my feeling is is that if you were issued a French rifle, probably everybody in your squad and maybe everybody in your platoon, maybe every soldier in your company was issued a French rifle as well. So that they could keep things streamlined for a logistical standpoint, generally speaking. You know, I know that at the very end, I've seen some equipment uh, weapons lists from Folksturm units where they have all different kinds of weapons in use. But that was, uh, you know, a totally desperate situation. Um,
0: yeah, Folksturm, they had... One of absolutely everything.
1: And Volksturm is another example where a captured weapon might be more appropriate than a K-98, you know, depending on what specific Volksturm unit you're portraying, where you are. Um, those guys definitely had to, they were scraping the very bottom of the barrel and were uh, getting all kinds of obsolete captured stuff, weird ammunition. I mean, some of those guys uh, who weren't in combat zones were like armed with clubs
0: that is true Yeah, Uh, I was going to say like hunting rifles but yeah clubs is a very yeah I I, read an
1: an account of a woman who was talking about the end of the war and her father was in the Volkssturm and his job was to patrol a railway line and he was armed with a club (laughs) so it's you know yeah hunting rifles sure
0: (laughs) yeah shotguns stuff like that um, no, but what about vehicles, though?
1: Well, that's that's a tough one too because um, once again, we're talking about issues of availability, issues of cost. Um, there are German vehicles that were very, very common in World War II. That, for like a reenactment perspective, they basically uh, don't exist. Um, Here in America, the types of trucks that were used by the Wehrmacht are just, they're just not really obtainable. So what's the solution? Do you just not have a truck or um, do you try to use a a Chevrolet or a Ford truck that... um, maybe was made in America for the American domestic market, and then maybe you try to make it look like a German Ford truck or you use it as a captured Ford truck that was shipped over for use by the American Armed Forces and was captured by the Germans and reused. You know, it's, it. there are some uh, some subjective decisions to be made there. And I've seen people that I thought did a fantastic job of it and I've seen things that I thought were absolutely terrible and I've seen everything in between. <laughs>
0: yeah uh i I recall recently seeing a photo from uh, um 1945 either like just before or just after the war ended uh it It's basically a huge field, and the photo is an, uh, is a photo from a plane, and it shows like the vehicle park that the entire German sector left behind, and the photo is like just trucks. And there's so many tracks, and none of them is the same as the other one.
1: <laughs> That's cool.
0: I translated yeah,
1: like, a, uh, a divisional you see,
0: like, history. You, see... <laughs> you go ahead. <laughs>
1: Sorry, I, I translated the original history and they mentioned uh, the challenges of the supply section to find tires and engine parts for truck engines that came from like 11 different countries, you know.
0: <laughs> oh, you can't imagine.
1: Um, but I know, Lasso, you came to that event here in America a couple of years ago, and you saw some, some captured vehicle stuff that uh, raised your eyebrows, if I remember uh-huh. right. Like, not in a good way.
0: <laughs> yes. the uh, Very specifically, the M3 White Scout car, which is basically an American half-track just with wheels in the back instead of tracks, uh, There was one of those. And it was painted uh, the ordnance yellow, the dunkelgelb color of late war German vehicles, and it had a huge, uh, like the huge uh, Balkenkreuz on all the sides, and it didn't look good in any, any way.
1: Yeah, you know. I don't... Maybe
0: if I close my eyes, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, that was that was a very lame attempt. It it reminds me of like the old movies where they just took like a patent tank and called it a King Tiger.
1: Well, of course the owner of this vehicle would probably say, well, you know, why don't you do it better? Where is your German half track? You know, where's your German vehicle? At least I have a vehicle, you know, I'm, I'm making something that makes fun out here. And, um, I tell you, I've heard that, that kind of stuff a lot. And that's, like I say, it kind of comes down to a subjective determination or your attitude about it or, you know, opinions about this stuff. It, it can be hard. It can be hard to draw that line.
0: Yeah, that that's like the problem.
1: Two like other, if
0: everyone just agreed with me, the reenactment scene would be perfect.
1: My unit used to portray, my old unit, was portraying part of the 3rd Panzer Deer Division. And, um there was some armored element of this division. I think it was the Panzerjäger Abteilung. And in Italy, they somehow got their hands on, whether they were they captured it or whether it was given to them from somewhere else, a, a bunch of British Bren carriers. And they converted each of these vehicles into this thing that what they called a Panzerjäger Bren. Now, the British Bren carrier is like a very light like, personnel carrier, lightly armored. It has a machine gun in the front. The Germans, um, in this particular unit, they mounted a bunch of Panzerschreck anti-tank rockets on these things, and they had racks of, like, uh, Panzerfaust rockets, I think, that were on these Panzerjäger-Brenn camouflaged them they painted them with camouflage and each one would be equipped with basically a tank hunting team so this thing would roll into combat get near a tank and I I don't think they actually would fire the Panzerschreck rockets from this thing but maybe they did I think the idea was they were supposed to grab this stuff and like get off the vehicle and go hunt down this this tank and knock it out Um, but two guys in my group and I went in and bought together from canada a brand carrier and we brought it back to the united states and our intention at the time was to convert it to one of these Yeager brand vehicles because you know we portrayed part of the same division and this was something that this specific division had in some numbers and even when i did it in the back of my mind i'm thinking you know it's going to be really fun to use this thing but this is like this might look really goofy you know <laughs>
0: You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Like, it would probably be better to just leave it as a brand carrier.
1: Yeah, like, we had all of these pictures and stuff of the actual vehicles in this group. And we had information that was unit-specific of how these things were converted and used. And we were going to incorporate all of that stuff. And we were doing this, you know. But like I say, even when we're doing it, I'm thinking, people aren't going to like this. I know people are not going to like this. You know, this might not look, this might not be a good look. Um, and as it turns out, we're, we're like, I have since sold my portion of that thing and um they're still working on it and it has never actually taken the field. Uh, it's still a work in progress and I don't know exactly what it's going to look like if it ever shows up at a reenactment. But, uh you know, it's tough. It's tough because you on the one hand, how can you say, well, you shouldn't, use this thing even though the unit that you portray used it and you've got this historical documentation and it was used in such and such a battle and that's what this event is, right? Um, But on the other hand, it's like, like you say, you know, we're trying to portray the norm here and some really oddball conversion that even if it did exist in this very particular historical place and time, something that most people have never heard of, uh, where they're going to look at it and think, "What the hell is that?" You know, it's <laughs> generally speaking, if you're doing something with your impression and other people can't figure out what you're doing, it's like probably not going to be a win for you. That's my feeling.
0: Yeah, and I feel like if you have a a quote unquote captured uh, enemy military vehicle, then it is usually best to just leave it as a bare bones enemy vehicle. Sure, but,
1: like, you know, captured maybe in that area of operations right where you are and, like, hastily pressed into service. You know, I, th- I do think that there is something to be said for for something like that.
0: Exactly. Um, but when you start converting it, uh, painting your M3 White Scout car yellow and pretending it is something it isn't, like, that's just stretching it. If, if at GAP, that was just a regular American m3 white scout car still having american markings it would actually be better
1: my old group had a 45 millimeter soviet anti-tank cannon and this thing was extremely cool the germans used these things as the designation uh pack 184r they used these captured soviet 45 millimeter anti-tank cannons they used them often in like an anti-personnel role right so my unit Um, We repainted ours, put like a German camouflage scheme on it, and we used it at a lot of events. Uh, Because we had this documentation that the Germans did use it. Another unit that we went to events with, they also had one of these. And they extensively converted theirs to look like a German Pac-36. So they got um, actual German Pac-36 wheels to replace the Soviet spoked wheels. And they turned down the muzzle. They removed material from the muzzle because a PAC 36 has a straight muzzle, whereas the Soviet one flares out slightly at the end. And I thought that was awesome, you know, that they had gone through that effort to make this Soviet 45 millimeter gun look like a 5 centimeter PAC 36. But kind of looking at it now, looking back on it, I realized that the sorry truth is that we were, the event where, you know, I saw that where we had our, our Soviet pack gun. It was portraying like a Normandy breakout, August 1944 scenario. And a uh, a pack 36 or a pack 184 hour would have been totally useless and nonsensical in a frontline unit in that place and time for the most part.
0: <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But then again, the, uh, uh, the uh, Russian captured uh, pack uh, were extensively used on coastal forts.
1: Yes, they were. And I actually wish, I wish I had that gun now. I wish I had bought, when those came into America uh, several years ago, and they cost 2000 or $3,000, they were very inexpensive. Now they're expensive to buy. But I wish I had one because um, I have seen them in use in static positions, like overlooking a bridge in case there was like an enemy. Uh, on the Eastern Front, for example, if there was going... Sometimes these Soviet tank attacks went very deep into the rear, so they had some, in some cases, fortified uh, positions with stuff like Soviet anti-tank cannons that were that were overlooking bridges, so that if a tank suddenly showed up, at least they could put up something of a fight, you know, delay them or whatever, Uh, warn people, give people a chance to escape or whatever it was. Um, But but using it, so I. In my rear area security unit situation now, I could think of a lot of uses for something like that. But looking back on how we used to use it as a frontline infantry you know, weapon in a Panzer Grenadier platoon in 1944, it was like, it was not really right. And I we we used to use it at a, uh, a public display, um, the event at Fort Indiantown Gap, Pennsylvania. We used to participate in the public battle, which was a small battle reenactment just for the public to see. And we used to bring that small anti-tank cannon. And I actually read some comments on like a news article about it. And there was a comment from someone who had gone as a spectator and been like, well, I, I didn't like this at all. I went there. The Germans had a uh some kind of Pac-36, you know, small anti-tank cannon. They wouldn't have been using that in the Battle of the Bulge. And I'm reading it. I'm like, man, he's not wrong, you know?
0: Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, no. There's a reason uh, anti-tank cannons grew really, really, really big to the point that they were that they basically stopped using them. Sure. Um If you've ever manhandled a pack forty, you know how heavy that is. And the pack forty wasn't even enough late war. So they started with the pack forty three and eventually the pack forty four. Like and like the british were sensible they stopped with anti-tank guns at the 17 pounder
1: yeah no a pack 40 is i can't imagine that you know people were supposed to be moving that thing around it's huge
0: Oh, uh, we we had to move one in a, in a field once and we were five six seven guys on it we weren't trained i mean training would probably help but it was heavy and we spent like probably 15 minutes moving it 10 meters sure
1: i mean that from a reenactment perspective it's like you have to get like a big trailer to move that thing around you know it's that is a hard thing to move around at all um yeah i mean a pack 36 is a very uh man portable type of a thing you know uh a group of of four people can move that thing around but of course it's just you know as we're talking about captured weapons i guess it just kind of speaks to like the many different layers of evaluating if a weapon is appropriate it's like okay well it's not just like did german soldiers use this but would this even have been applicable at all to like the time period being portrayed at a specific event sometimes you can in, in the process of like you know, studying about the Pack One Eighty Four R and figuring out who used it and in what cases it was used and trying to justify it. You know, I've totally kind of spaced out on like, okay, well, a five centimeter gun wouldn't have been used in this situation really at all of any origin. You know,
0: <laughs> it's it's ba- it, like it was given to coastal forts because it was useless on the front.
1: Yeah, right. And yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, I've, I've made, I've made mistakes, but, uh, I think for, and to be, to be fair, we did use it at a, at coast, at a coastal fort, at an event that we used to have every year at a coastal fort. And, and it looked awesome there, you know, it was appropriate there and it, it, it was a really cool display piece. But of course, um, you know, there were other times that, that I used this thing that probably, would have been better to leave it at home. And I think yeah, I can say the same thing about almost everything that's like a captured um weapon, is that there are some times that it might be appropriate, but there are other times that it's definitely not going to be appropriate. And I think that's a mistake that people make with captured weapons where it's like, I bought this, German soldiers used this, I'm portraying a German soldier, I'm gonna use this, and it's like, all right, it's not appropriate all the time.
0: Yeah you're basically trying to find an impression to suit your needs than finding a need to suit your impression.
1: Yep. I right. I don't know what I'm thinking. Yeah. No, but I you're it's totally right. It's like the wrong way to build an impression. You're starting from a piece of gear and working from there instead of starting from an impression and then figuring out what gear you need.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, um I think that pretty much covers that. Um, I did want to throw out there that I think our next episode is going to be one that I am excited about, which is going to be discussing the clerk impression in World War II reenacting, um, paperwork in World War II reenacting, what it means, why it is or isn't important, how all of that stuff can be portrayed. So um, if you have any questions about paperwork stuff, I think pe- people who follow me on Facebook know that this is a real passion of mine and has been for a long time. So, um, if there's anything that you want to hear discussed in the podcast, um, shoot me a message or, or get in touch with us, and I'll try to uh, I'll try to cover that when we talk about it, which hopefully will be in in two weeks.
0: Yeah, we'll aim f- we'll aim for that.
1: Yeah, or if not in two weeks, it'll be some some very soon time because I know we have some other content that we have to release. Um, as well, coming up soon, but that's yeah, uh,
0: very exciting content
1: do you wanna do you wanna uh like tell them what the very exciting content's gonna be?
0: Hmm, maybe we could, we could give to. a little teaser. it's old
1: <laughs> cool um all right, uh Lassa, did you wanna add anything else about this?
0: No, I think we've covered it very well.
1: Cool. It's been fun talking about this. Um so Lassa, I hope that you have a nice night and to everybody out there, I will see you in the field.
0: See you in the field, guys. And just at the very end, I would like to remind everybody that we do have a discount code available for our listeners for Ferlag Kopf. So if you wanna if you fancy some more personal items and well, I mean, they make a lot of stuff. So go check them out at German-WW2.com That is Fela cop at uh, German-WW2.com And at checkout use the discount code PODCAST2020 That is PODCAST2020 for a nice discount.